All right, all right. Hello, good afternoon. Welcome. Great to have all of you guys today. So, as a way of kind of introduction, where we are today and what's been going on in terms of what we're exploring and what we're talking about, we are talking about covenants. So, I believe last week, Shady got us kicked off with the Abrahamic covenant. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so today we're going into sort of another covenant in the Bible, and that is the Mosaic covenant. So we're going to be um, exploring sort of Exodus, and particularly Exodus 19 till 24. So if you have Bibles, pull them up, and we'll be jumping around from a couple of different places. Um, if you don't have your Bible, you can just follow along with um, where we go and what I read. But before we do anything, let's just commit this time to God. Father, we just come before you right now, Lord, and uh, we ask you to speak. Um, pray, Lord, that you say all that's on your heart, Lord, and that uh, you know what every single person is going through right now. So we pray that you challenge, that you convict, that you speak, that you teach us something new and help us to walk um, out of here renewed, refreshed, and um, with new insight, Lord, and um, a new outlook on, on who you are, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Beautiful. So, as Shady would have um, mentioned last week, we are in this series, we're in the second part of this series on covenants. And um, covenants is kind of connecting different aspects, if not the whole Bible, together in um, a few different ways. So, if you look at the Bible, it may look like it's just one massive book with heaps of different pages, heaps of different chapters, and things here and there, quotes, this, that, and there's just a lot going on. But what covenants help us to do with the Bible is that it brings stories and collections and narratives from all different sections of this massive book that we call the Bible and connects it through Jesus. Um, Or a lot of the time connects it through Jesus. And we'll explore specifically within the Mosaic Covenant what that looks like. Um, So yeah, again, as a way of introduction, let's unpack a little bit Um, And in a little bit more detail uh, today, what we'll be exploring and specifically what is the Mosaic Covenant. So the Mosaic Covenant is named after Moses and simply put, a covenant is an agreement. Uh, So in this case, an agreement between God and the nation of Israel. So at this point in the story, we will start off in Exodus 19. We have the nation of Israel and they were growing in number. So there were... um, you know, getting larger and uh, larger at this point. So God brought them to the Mount uh, Sinai to make a covenant with them. And this covenant was a temporary overseer for the nation of Israel. It was teaching the righteous standards of God and revealing the sin of man until the coming of Christ. And yes, after Christ's death and resurrection, we are no longer under the law, but we are under grace. But in saying that, that doesn't mean that the old covenant, which we'll explore today, is useless. Um, No, the the Old Testament covenants, the Ten Commandments, are still very much valid today. Um, So we'll kick it off in Exodus 19 from specifically verse 5. It says this. Now, therefore... 
If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine. And we'll keep going, but in a, in a little bit more detail later. So here God is reminding the people of their obligation towards the covenant. And the people of Israel actually agreed to these conditions set by God. But this pledge, however, is actually a profound mistake, if you want to think about it, from the Israelites' perspective. Because they understood their, if they actually understood their human condition, they would have never made this agreement with God. Because it's absolutely impossible to be justified by the works of the law. And human, uh, always, humans are always going to fall short of the standard. We're always going to sin. We're always going to fall short of the standard, which is Christ. So it's impossible to be justified in that way. And how this covenant differs from other covenants within the Old Testament is that this covenant is conditional. And what this means is that God's promises are directly related to Israel's obedience to the Mosaic law. If Israel is obedient, then God is going to bless the nation. But if they disobey, God is going to punish them. And the other covenants found in the Bible are covenants of promises, as we call them, where God binds himself to do what he promised, regardless of what the recipient might do on the opposite side. And on the other hand, the Mosaic Covenant is an agreement between two sides that specifies the obligations between these two parties. But why this covenant is kind of really significant and uh, really special is that it requires the nation of Israel to live differently than any other nations. They are essentially representatives of Christ on earth. They are to be a light within a dark world. And they need to be different in that the way they worship, the way they honor God, the way they do absolutely everything needs to be unique and fully dedicated to God. But what we need to understand about this covenant is the holiness of God, the holiness of the person who this covenant is pointing towards, the difference between man and God and the need for a savior. To give us a little bit of um, background and context of where we are within this Exodus story. So the Israelites are now about three to four months out of Egypt and now they're in the Sinai desert region. If you are familiar with your Middle East or Egypt geography, it's a desert part past the sort of Suez Channel. It's about, if you know where Cairo is, it's about 400 kilometers east towards the desert from Cairo. So now we have the Israelites, they're pitching their tents within this desert and they're camping under Mount Sinai. Moses then goes up to the mountain and God tells him in Exodus 19.6, continuing on from what we were reading, and you, shall be, um, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God here promises Moses and the nation of Israel that if you obey my voice and keep my covenants, I'll keep you close to me and I will bless the nation. So Moses then goes down the mountain. He speaks with the elders. He tells them this is God, what, what God is saying. And in verse 8, they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So there is an agreement within this place. And it's funny because I guess three to four months is perhaps... Not, a, not enough time for them to cause up a fuss yet. But what we're going to see later on in the story that they just need a little bit more time before they just start going crazy. So cool, all is going well with the Israelites and uh, with the whole nation. 
And what we have here then is God commands the people of Israel to purify themselves, to consecrate themselves, because on the third day, God was going to appear on the mountain to the nation and and, and specifically to Moses. And the Lord had very specific conditions as to where the Israelites could physically stand um, just outside the mountain. They couldn't cross a certain boundary around this mountain, otherwise they would be put to death. And you see, you might read this part of the story and think like, oh, that's a little bit extreme. Like just because I cross a line, you're going to like kill me. That's that's crazy. But what God is revealing here is that obedience is the most important thing to him. Obedience above feelings. And within our lives, when we're faced with difficult situations, we tend to question God first and we tend to obey him second or third or fourth. And in fact, God looks for obedience of the heart first and foremost before anything else. And this stems from a trust of God. Here, he's showing the Israelites a very practical lesson uh, with boundaries. And in our daily lives, we might not have physical boundaries that we get to see, but we are still required to trust God wholeheartedly. So let's pick it up from verse 16 and find out this crazy uh, story of God appearing on the third day. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at foot on the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it with fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. And God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. So on the third day, just like God promised, he descended on the mountain. And that morning there was thunder, there was lightning, there were trumpet sounds, there was fire, there's a cloud and God appearing and and all sorts of crazy things Uh, that are happening at the moment. And all these things are natural, but they were appearing by God and for God. So Moses uh, spoke to God because the trumpets were just getting too loud and the nation of Israel were just like, oh my goodness, my eardrums are going to explode. Um, And then the Lord answers back um, to Moses and the whole nation could hear God speaking, like audibly hear God. Uh, That would be pretty cool if that kind of happened today. Um, Like I was reading this and I'm like, wow, like the credibility Moses must have gotten from like something like this where God is speaking directly to the whole nation. Like he must be, yeah, the big, the big dog in there, (laughs) which he was. So imagine you were the, the Israelite seeing all these things unfold before your eyes. Often this part of the story doesn't get as much attention as, you know, crossing the Red Sea and whatnot, which, okay, fair enough. That is a crazy story. But this is also ridiculous to think about. Um, God tells then Moses to continue the story. God then Moses tells him to go down the mountain in case the Israelites were getting too curious and they were wanting to step across the boundaries and perhaps they might die. And it's easy to think that such an interaction would kind of inspire the Israelites to live holy lives. That many people today believe that, you know, churches need moments of fire, of, of clouds, of 
God coming down, ascending on the mountain and, and trumpets and thunder and fire. A lot of the time we think that we need more of these things within our churches. But that's far from the truth. We don't need more of those experiences. Because even though this is an amazing experience, let's not deny that. About 40 days later, the whole nation of of the Israelites had an orgy in front of a golden calf, which they started praising and saying that this golden calf has brought us out of Egypt. So it took them 40 days from having a, a crazy spiritual experience where they saw miracles and God doing amazing things to 40 days later having an orgy and saying this golden calf is the one that brought us out of the land of Egypt. So let's not take our sort of selves and say, you know, this nation of Israel are so wicked, they're so this, they're so that, because a lot of the time that is us, right? Our, our view of things is so clouded because, you know, we read this as a, as a story, but rather in our lives, this happens on a, on a daily basis in a lot of different ways for us too. And while reading this, what I want us to understand is that there is a difference of being in awe of God and submitting to God. Because submission is wholeheartedness trust, uh, regardless of your own desires. And in, in addition to that, we learn of God's holy requirements that he wants from this nation. To share with you a quote from R.C. Sproul, which um, I absolutely adore um, R.C. Sproul, he says this, If God graded on a curve, he would have to compromise his own holiness. God doesn't lower his own standards to accommodate us. He remains altogether holy, altogether righteous, and altogether just. But we are unjust, and therein lies our dilemma. The problem is not that God is unjust. The problem is that we think we know better than God. And in Exodus uh, 34, which again we'll unpack in a little bit more detail, um, Moses asks God to reveal himself um, and to reveal his glory to him. And God essentially says to him, no man has ever seen me and lived. Like I can't just reveal myself in the way that you want me um, to reveal myself. So God kind of works out a plan um, where he tells Moses, you know, I'm going to pass by. I'm going to get my angels to, to cover and you're not going to, you know, die. Um, so kind of God works out this plan. So what happens here is, you know, Moses gets up early and he goes up the mountain. He goes up the mountain and down the mountain so often in this story. Um, I assume he would have been very fit uh, from this. <laughs> but God met him and he proclaimed himself to him there. And what's beautiful and significant about this moment is that um, within this part where the, the Lord proclaims himself or pronounces himself to him is that the Bible in the Bible it's written Lord as capitals, all capitals. And what this means or what this actually translates to is the is the like legit name of God, like the actual name of the Lord. So whenever you see Capital L-O-R-D, that's the actual name of God within the Bible. Um, so today we're not actually sure how that kind of gets pronounced, but we have a little bit of an idea. But if you actually speak to a, a Jewish person today, they won't speak the, the name of God in honor for him. They would simply call him the name or they would pause when they're about to say God. Again, out of um, respect for him. 
And they wouldn't even spell out the name God, again, out of respect for him, which comes to kind of what we know uh, God's name to be. It's uh, Yahweh, um, as we say it today. But firstly, what are the Ten Commandments? Um, I'm not going to kind of go one by one and unpack specifically and exactly what each one is. I really try to condense as much as I can into today's message. So we're going to look at specific things within them and what they stand for, what they mean and what God is saying. So just to kind of summarize them quickly to um, make us familiar with what they are. I'm sure we've read this before, but in Exodus 20, if you wanted to have a look at them, number one is you shall have no other gods before me. Two, um, no idols. Three, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Four, Sabbath day, keep it holy. Uh, five, honor your father and mother. Six, no murder. Seven, do not commit adultery. Uh, eight, do not steal. Nine, um, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. And ten, you shall not cover. Again, without going into too much detail of the old covenant versus the new covenant, because that's going to be another sort of, um, not series, but another uh, message that gets later on down the track. Um, but in summary form between the two of them, we see that the old speaks of fear and of terror. The new speaks of love and forgiveness. And at Sinai, only Moses could come and meet God. But at Zion, all can. At Sinai, had guilty men in fear. But Zion has just men made perfect. At Sinai, Moses is the mediator. But at Zion, Jesus is the mediator. Sinai is all about law. Zion is all about grace. That's all I'm going to say on that, just so I don't burn things um, or speak in something that I'm not supposed to. <laughs> but at the start of Exodus 20, verse 1, it said, God spoke. So here we have God speaking the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel directly and verbally from heaven. And this is possibly like the strongest way to portray a message that you want to give, having the God of the universe speak directly from heaven to the nation that he wants to hear it. And these Ten Commandments weren't invented by God at this particular moment of time. As the Bible tells us, they were written on the hearts of man since Adam. And this means that all human beings have sufficient knowledge of what is right and wrong written on their hearts as a universal morality. And the fact that this law was spoken by God means that it belongs to him. This wasn't Moses' law. This is God's law. And this means that no person is to think of themselves above the law because God is the law. These laws are God's kind of moral code for us. His moral instruction and guide to humanity at all times. The idea of a God, um, a God-based moral code seems to become less and less popular over the years and over time. And even though some people still believe that it's a thing and it exists, but many people believe that it should be based, based on one's own sort of individual um, assessment or self-assessment um, of what's right and what's wrong, rather than the standards being set by God himself. These aren't so much as rules set by God as we sometimes like to think, but they're rather a gift given to humanity by God. Romans 7, 12 says, So the law is holy and all the commandments is holy and righteous and good. These commandments that we read are good gifts given to us by God 
to the nation of Israel and also to humanity at Mount Sinai. But there is a problem. And the problem is that these standards are God's standards for us. And, and since we're human beings, we can't live up to these standards because he's God and we're humans. We're always going to fall short of that standard. And God knew this, which is why he brought about this idea of sacrifices. And ultimately, then he gives us Jesus to become the one and only sacrifice for our sins. But what a sacrifice is, it, it depends on giving an innocent victim as a substitute for the guilty lawbreaker. And in this sense, the Ten Commandments were like a mirror that showed Israel um, and their need for a sacrifice. And we see Jesus refer to this commandment in Matthew 22 from verse 35 to 40. It says, Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This answer given by Jesus doesn't eliminate the other eight. It actually fulfills them all within these two. The only one who kept these commandments perfectly was Jesus and Jesus alone. And even though he was the only one who didn't need to make sacrifices because he was sinless, he still chose to send his son to die on the cross and become the once and for all sacrifice. So we can say that this law has ultimately three purposes, which is it's a guardrail in keeping humanity on this moral path of God. Number two, it's a mirror showing us our moral failure and our need for a saviour. And three, it is a guide showing us the heart and desire of God for his people. And when we look at the Ten Commandments, they're often organized into two sections, not five and five, but rather four and six. Where we have the first four, they focus towards God, and the next six about the conduct towards one another. And simply put in words, Augustine says this. He says, Love God and do as you please. And it took me a while. I was like, what? Do as you please? Why are you including man in this? But he says, do as you please, because if you love God, your desires naturally become his desires. You want to please him. And if we were to just focus on these two commandments that Jesus gave to us in that, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, we'll um, see a little bit of a, a glimpse of something in Matthew 6, 19 to 21. It says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what we see here is that we serve what we worship. So another question for us tonight is where is your treasure? Just like when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, Satan showed God all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, if you worship me, I will give you all of these things. But in Matthew 4, 10, it's, uh, this is the, the answer of Jesus. He says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And when I read this, I'm like, well, Satan didn't say anything about serving him. He just told him, worship me, not serve me. Um, 
But Jesus knows something here. He knows that we serve what we worship. So what is it that is on the altar of your life? What do you put before God? Because the Bible tells us that God is a jealous God. Like imagine if your partner or someone really close to you comes up to you and tells you, you know, I'm going to start seeing other people now. And you're like, what? Like you'd be heartbroken. Like you'd be really sad. And it's the same with God. He doesn't want to share you. In, in fact, he cannot share you. And I've heard, I've heard people say um, something along the lines of like, you know, yeah, my, my partner doesn't get jealous over me. Like that's their best quality. I absolutely love that. No, like your partner is supposed to be jealous over you. You know, like I don't want to share you. I don't want you to share me. Like you are mine and you are mine alone. So what this verse is telling us is that kind of an idol is anything that we put before God. And it could even be ourselves. Are you putting yourself before God? What is the first thing that you kind of think about when you get out of bed? Where do you spend the most of your money? What do you think about the most? Because an idol doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can um, be absolutely anything. And it can be uh, starting off as a good thing. Um, Yeah, so it can be a good thing, but just out of place or not put in its rightful place. And as Christians, there are obvious black and whites that we have from the Bible. But it's the greys that Satan really likes to come and twist and turn them into black within our lives. It could be a good thing like your family or your career or your partner or your friends. But if God is not the number one thing in your life, then you are falling short of the expectation and the standard. We need to put everything in its rightful place and things only fall within their rightful place if we put God first because God is the most important thing above our family, our kids, our career, our finances or anything else. Proverbs 27.20 says, Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. We are never and will never be satisfied outside of Christ. And sometimes we can get lost in the things outside of Christ. It's a constant desire. It's a constant want. It's a constant chasing after the wind and chasing after the next thing. But God has already promised us that he will provide what we need. 1 Timothy 6.17 As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us everything to enjoy. You see, we live in an age where I feel like we've forgotten how to be grateful, where we don't really stop to think and, and be thankful to God for where we currently are. Are we constantly thinking about sort of the next big things or do we have moments within our lives to just sit down, quiet our hearts, quiet our minds and just be thankful with, with, with God, with what God has placed in our lives? Because something might not start as sinful, but it can become sinful if it's placed above God. Another quote by R.C. Sproul, he says, My sins have not brought me happiness, but my sins have brought me pleasure. I like pleasure. I'm still very much attracted to pleasure. Pleasure can be great fun, and not all pleasures are sins. There is much pleasure to be found in righteousness, but the difference is still there. Sin can be pleasurable, but it never brings happiness. All habits, whether good or bad within our lives, start off as decisions. You know, 
simple example that we can have within our lives is when, you know, you're at home, you're a Friday night and you're like, I've had just such a long week. Can't be bothered going to church. I don't want to go to church. But God is actually the person who sustained you throughout the whole week, who's kept you going to work Monday to Friday. And he, he wants you to kind of enjoy that further. He who gives you strength throughout the week will also give you strength and will sustain you in his commands. I'm not here to kind of dismiss your interests or your passions or the things that you like to do. But if your interests and passions go above God, they become sinful. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God will provide. God is in control. So all in all, the Ten Commandments are not about a controlling God who just simply gives us a bunch of rules to follow. It's not a prison sentence or God wanting to limit our fun. Rather, it's about a loving father who knows humanity more than humans know themselves. He knows exactly what they need because he created them. Therefore, he's giving them a guide on the best life to live. And if you don't believe me, there's a person in the Bible by the name of Solomon, who he was the king of Israel. He was the son of David. And Solomon went on a binge, an absolute binge. He was breaking every command out there that existed. He was chasing after sexual pleasures, women, drunkenness, materialistic possessions. And he had absolutely everything anyone could have ever um, wanted. But at the end of his life, aside from labeling everything apart from God as meaningless, this is also what he had to say in Ecclesiastes 12.13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fear God and keep his commandments. That, that's coming from a guy who's kind of lived at large um, and done everything under the sun. And there's also an example of, a, of the rich young ruler who was at the top of kind of the corporate ladder or the, the top of the food chain within that environment. He had absolutely everything. And he came up to Jesus and he asked him, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And the man walked away sad. I'm not saying that this is the requirement for everyone's eternal life, but it was for this man. God doesn't just want things that you are willing to give him. God wants absolutely everything. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Would you allow God the space to circumcise your heart? For the rich young ruler, it was money that took him away. But what is it for you that is distracting? Perhaps for you, it's a relationship that you think that you shouldn't be in or a career that's taken over your life. There should be no aspect of our lives that we hold on so tightly, even if it's the most precious things within our lives. You know, we we have a, a great example of Abraham who was even willing to sacrifice his son on the altar, that he believed God would bring him back to life, that even if he killed him, He would rise up again because God promised him that he wouldn't die. But what are you holding on so tightly? 
Because you see what happens when we violate these covenants or these commands that God gives us is that your life is out of the natural balance of what it's supposed to look like. And in today's culture, there are those who believe that some commands are more important than other commands. Like, for example, some will say, you know, do not commit uh, murder and do not steal are still very relevant within our culture and our society. But something like, you know, do not use the Lord's name in vain or you shouldn't have idols perhaps aren't as relevant anymore. And this is far from the truth. That's like saying God's character evolves and changes with culture and over time, which absolutely does not happen. God does not change. These commandments are God's heart and that's what they reveal to us. And just lastly, I wanted to also touch on Exodus 34, which is kind of pretty special. I know there's so much to cover here, um, but I, I didn't want to kind of stop there. And I wanted to unpack Exodus 34 in a little bit more detail. I promise I'll, I'll nearly finish and I won't take too long. But um, in Exodus 34, kind of what's happening to give a little bit of an idea. Um, after the nation of Israel was worshipping that golden calf and as Moses was with, was with God on the mountain... Um, he came back down and he pitched his tent outside of the camp of the nation of Israel. And why he did that? Because the, the camp was defiled, was unclean at that time. And he went into this tent as the cloud of God uh, descended. And everyone could see physically that, you know, Moses and God were speaking to each other at that point because they knew that cloud was associated with that. So they could physically see um, what was going on. Now, when Moses was at the top of the mountain, God told him what was going on within uh, the camp and the defilement that was going on. And effectively, God wanted to destroy the nation of Israel. He wanted to kind of start again with the whole nation because it didn't please the Lord as to what they were doing. And then God told Moses that his presence wouldn't be fully with Moses as he came down from the mountain. Because if his presence was fully with him, the whole nation would be destroyed because they're so impure and God is so holy and pure that the two couldn't exist within um, each other's sight. So God is all holy and in his holiness, he couldn't tolerate the, the sin of the nation. But what happens here, I believe that God draw, draws Moses into prayer for the nation of Israel to be a intercessor for them. God wanted Moses to feel what he feels about the heart of man. And after Moses prayed, God's heart uh, and anger was sort of restrained from destroying the nation um, of Israel. So in the previous chapter, Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And on his way down, he he saw what was going on. and He broke the two uh, tablets of the Ten Commandments in his uh, frustration. So now we're in chapter 34. God calls him again up the mountain. There's so much up and down going on. Um, And he spends another 40 days and 40 nights up there. And the significance of that is that it shows that God is accepting the nation of Israel once again. He's renewing uh, the relationship and renewing the covenant. Um. And when God revealed his name to Moses, let's uh, read what that was like in Exodus 34, 6 to 7. So that's what kind of I was talking about earlier, the God revealing his his name, Lord, capital L-O-R-D. This is what's going on. Exodus 34, 6 to 7. 
And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children's for their sins of their parents, the third and fourth generation. You see, the parts of God's character that he chooses to reveal to Moses in this particular instant, because there's many more um, characteristics of of God, but he just chose to reveal these specific ones to him. They're positive characteristics. They are showing grace. They're showing love. They are showing mercy. And by the way, if you're kind of reading that and you're like, oh, generational curses, what's going on there? Um, I don't believe that that's about generational curses. Um, I think this is about the Israelites kind of being raised in idolatry. Um, It's like the verse in um, Proverbs where it says, you know, raise a child in the way they should go. And when they're older, they won't depart from it. I think this verse is applicable to raising kids regardless of religion, right? That if you raise your kids wrong, they will go down the wrong way. If you raise your kids right, they go down um, the right way. I see it as a cycle rather than a curse. I don't think it's a generational curse. Just a side note. But um, back to the story. Moses didn't want the characteristics of God. Like when he was actually asking God to reveal himself to him, he didn't want a bunch of words from God for him to speak uh, to Moses. He wanted that goosebump moment. He wanted that hype moments. He wanted that like big revelation uh, of God. But God didn't give Moses what he wanted, but he gave Moses what he needed. And when, when God actually revealed that capital L-O-R-D to him, he fell down and he worshipped. He worshipped because in light of God's revelation, he saw his own shortcomings. And it's like us when we worship. It's not about who's leading worship. It's not about the song. It's not about um, us or them. It's about God because worship is a, is a selfless act that we do. And most of the remaining chapter, God tells Moses where the nation of Israel is to do and, and not to do, um, all of which are summarized in these two specific verses. First Samuel 2.30 says, Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father's should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me I shall be lightly esteemed. And again in Proverbs sixteen seven, when a man's way pleases the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So essentially, what the rest of the chapter is saying, you place God as your number one, God will take care of the rest. Um, but a really important part here is Exodus thirty four twenty eight later on in the story where Moses was there with God 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking uh, water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So Moses actually wrote them himself the second time rather than God writing it for him. Um, I, I'd say as a way of, of punishment and actions having consequences. So when Moses broke them, now he had to work and toil for actually writing them once again. Um, But what's really cool and interesting here is that he didn't eat and he didn't drink for the whole time he was up there. So obviously there is divine intervention of some sort. This isn't Moses sustaining himself. This is God sustaining Moses on that mountain. 
And then in verse 29, when Moses came down the mountain um, uh, from the Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. God here is reinforcing his choice of Moses to the nation of Israel and also the Ten Commandments as they come down the mountain once again. It's confirming the truth of God. It's confirming his greatness. Um, and that happens with no other God whatsoever. Um, that only happens with um, Christ. And also Moses goes up one way and then he comes down looking completely different. And he was different because he was in the presence of God. And the truth of this is that you cannot spend real time in the presence of God without being changed. And you don't need to let people know that, you know, I've spent this much time with God today. I've been reading my Bible for five hours or doing this or doing that. Because when you spend time with God, it is noticeable for those around you. So just to end here, God is good. He has done good for the nation of Israel and does good for them in giving them these commandments. The keeping of which not only please him, but are genuinely the best life for us as humans. And the thing about these commandments is that we've all broken them and no one can live up to the standard, which is Christ. James 2.10 tells us, "For, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. These laws and these commandments um, don't make me holy. They show me that I'm not holy. It's, it's kind of a, a moral mirror that you, you, you see how far you are from the standard. That when I look at this moral mirror, I realize how short I am of the standard. It's not um, there to make me feel bad about my sins, but it leads me towards Jesus It takes the attention away from man and it focuses all the attention on Christ. And Moses, at the end of his life, said a famous sentence to the nation of Israel. He said, choose life, not death. So tonight, what are we choosing? What are we choosing in the light of Jesus' death on the cross? At that point, animal sacrifices weren't enough and God had a bigger, better more loving plan for all humanity. And that was Jesus. What I want us to get out of this is that the covenant of God, the promises of God, that the Ten Commandments show the character of God. They're not a bunch of rules set by him, but rather it's a way of life for us, not as a, a dictatorship from God, but as a, as a way of life for us and as the best life we can truly have on earth. Um, we'll explore in, in further messages what the old covenant versus the new covenant looks like. Today we are under the age of grace, but the old um, testament commands are not useless for us today. They truly have meaning. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you, Lord, that um, that you spoke, Lord, and we... Pray that we can take something away from today, that we can apply it to our lives, Lord. And um, we pray that you uh, would convict and challenge and kind of help us to ponder upon what we've heard, Lord, and um, put you at the center of life, Lord, that 
nothing in this world, Lord, will ever satisfy us apart from you, Lord, that you don't promise an easy life, but you promise a satisfying life. And uh, we look forward to the day where we see you face to face and you call us, well done, my good and faithful servant, Lord. But until that day, I pray that we put you first and have you the center of our lives, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.